This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. So it got a little frustrating because they had their own problem with that. Like, how do you tell people that this year, okay, let's say you knew only one hurricane was coming to make landfall. One, what do you do? So we started kind of messaging every year you prepare for that event. Every year. Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. I'm lucky to uh, live in Southern California for the last 20 years, well, maybe a little bit more than 20 years, but <laughs> so anyway, we're living here in Southern California and if I want to see snow, I drive up into the mountains and I get to see snow and it's kind of cool that way. Because of this, you know, we don't think of a weather a lot out here as an issue, I suppose. Now we do get rained and obviously after we have fires and rain comes, we're worried about the mudslides or debris flow, things like this. It really is a concern, right? And so, you know, weather does become a really important part of the emergency manager's life. We're coming off of two hurricanes that hit the southeast. Weather really drives a lot of what we do as emergency managers, you know, so I think it's really important to know, you know, how the system works. And so, before we get into the interview, I'd like to invite you all to come to the EM Weekly uh, group on Facebook to discuss what's going on in emergency management today and join the conversation. And we have a lot of fun over there. We chit chat every once in a while. I get to do some uh, some cool uh, live uh, videos over there to talk to people about what's going on in emergency management. So we really try to be interactive over there. So we try to have fun. That's the goal, at least over there. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, just, you know, those uh, social media things. <laughs> yeah, so come on over, check us out and, and have fun. So, well, let's get into the interview. So it's awesome. I have um, Alex Tardy here with me from NOAA. I've known Alex for a little while here and working on some cool projects together. And I finally, finally, finally was able to get him on to come onto the show. So Alex, welcome to EM Weekly. Thanks for having me on. So Alex, tell me how you got involved with meteorology. So meteorology was a passion. You know, when you say, oh yeah, I want to do that when you're five years old, that's what I said. And it didn't come necessarily from me and wanting to look at lightning or snow. It came from skiing. I got involved with skiing growing up back east in New England, and I couldn't understand why we would have a snowstorm in the forecast, and they say 10 inches and maybe 2 inches fell, or they say 2 inches and 12 inches fell. (laughs) It became a fascination, almost a frustration, obsession. So I started following weather, watching it real closely. And then I got into other weather like lightning, flooding, all that type of thing. But it, it all started and stemmed out of will the skiing be really good, good, bad, and, and, and why is the forecast wrong? So the Weather Channel, probably heard that before, the Weather Channel was certainly a culprit because in 1982, when we first got cable, the Weather Channel was showing, you know, all these forecasts and my local forecasts and all that. And I just kept following them. And it got to the point where I just wrote it down on paper. I would write down, you know, what actually really happened, like at my house and, and tracking it really closely and then watching the forecast. And I just remember thinking, you know, 
gosh, we could we do a little bit better with the forecasts? And next thing you know, I'm taking college courses. That's awesome. What what school did you go to? Uh, State University of New York, Albany, which is uh, one of the better programs actually for meteorology back east. Believe it or not, when when you check into schools, you don't have not every school is offering meteorology or atmospheric science. So when I first started looking into it, you know, like my sister wanted to be a nurse. So she started looking into it and like every school seemed to have some type of nursing program or business or something. But when I looked at the meteorology, I got a little worried. I was like, wow, I'll have to leave my home state. I'll have to go somewhere else. I'll have to go to a big school. Turns out, you know, there's there's more than I thought there was because we didn't have the internet at that time. <laughs> right. But I end up going to Albany and and uh, one of the better professors that's known kind of worldwide is, is still working there to this day. And University of Albany is at Great Danes and they have a really great lacrosse program there, by the way, everybody. So if you guys remember, if you listened to some of my speeches, I actually went back to Albany last year and was able to speak to the emergency management program there. And so they also have a really quality EM program at the uh, UAlbany as well. So just a little plug for you guys over there in the, the great state of New York. So you went to UAlbany, you get your degree, and then you start becoming a storm chaser, right? Yeah. So when you when you start learning more about it, and then you actually think that you're like a forecaster, or you can actually do stuff, or you actually understand the concept and the science of it, yeah, you start being more adventurous. So I used to be, I just was at home following weather locally. But then, you know, we like with friends and stuff from school that have similar interests, yeah, we We'd go a different type of storm chasing. And it's not always, you know, it wasn't always like classic storm chasing. We would get excited over lake effect snow coming off the Great Lakes. Uh, we would, I would go like in an evening and just chase a lake effect snow band. As crazy as that sounds. Yeah. So you see on TV that, oh, you chase a tornado and that's it. Done. <laughs> you know, that's exciting, quite dangerous, but exciting but yeah, we would chase crazy stuff up, go skiing in the middle of a snowstorm when we knew it was going to be horrible whiteout conditions, miserable. And just to be out in the element, you know, and experience it, you know, flooding. We did some stupid stuff like where we would jump in, you know, like standing water in a parking lot after a big thunderstorm. Wow, we're swimming. This is a parking lot, <laughs> you know. So um, it became more of uh, you know experiencing all different type types of weather. I mean, we did have respect for the weather. Like I, I remember even to this day, uh, but but back then too, that I was scared of lightning. I kept thinking, you know, that I was going to be struck by lightning for some weird reason. <laughs> My mom used to have to like lock the door in the house even as a teenager, and like you're not going out until the storm is done. <laughs> she was more the mercy manager type. <laughs> so, somehow, so somehow or another, you, through your career, you ended up with Noah. How did you get there? Coming out of college in the 90s, it was kind of a transition with Noah, where National Weather Service was, was trying to close down a lot of places, but also expand and bring in new technology, weather radar, automated weather stations, new satellites. With that came new offices. So a lot of the old 70s technology that I was trained on, literally 70s technology, was being replaced. And they had a pretty aggressive plan. So they hired a lot of people in the 90s. And I got hired in a place where probably no one listening knows where it is, uh, Volans, Virginia. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you apply with a you know, generic application, you know, like 
I'll go anywhere and here's my application. <laughs> you actually have an interview on the phone, interview, not in person. They still don't do in-person interviews. And then you have a couple openings that come up and you say yes or no. They have you get a pool and they, they pick you. So I had a choice between Glasgow, Montana and Volans, Virginia. And when I saw Glasgow, I said, I know that that's a really cold place. And I grew <laughs> up in a cold place. And I don't want it more cold. So I Virginia, how bad could Virginia be? So I took this place. Well, but then after I accepted the job, I, I didn't know where the heck I was going. And I had to go to like a travel agency and ask them. They didn't know. And so we break out this big map on a table you know, we're pointing around, you know, like, is it near Washington, D.C.? No. Is it Western? No. Northern? No. It's like down near the North Carolina border and like literally out, out of nowhere. Um, so I was given advice, which was probably the best advice that I ever could be given by someone in, in, in the agency. And they said, just get your foot in the door. Just take it and go. Don't think about it. So I went. I, I didn't own anything. I just took my car. They told me to show up on a certain date. I had to go to like the county jail and get fingerprints. And they, they put it in the federal system and you're cleared. And I started working there. To this day, you know, the best thing I could have done because it led to a lot of other possibilities and potential and promotion and opportunities. But if I had thought about it too much, I probably wouldn't have gone. <laughs> <laughs> so it's amazing that you ended up starting in Virginia and now you're in San Diego. That's kind of cool. Yeah. There's opportunities to move around because we have offices and still to this day, 122 offices in almost every major city. When I go to San, when I went to San Diego, people always used to say, what are you going to do? You're, you're going to be bored. You're going to hate meteorology. You're, I'm like, no, no, I'll be okay. I, I got it out of my system. I mean, remember, I went skiing in snowstorms. I, I intentionally chased storms. I intentionally went swimming in rainwater coming down a creek. So I'm, I'm not I'm not going to have those opportunities nearly as much, but I can do it remotely, and I can still follow it remotely. <laughs> right. Um, it turns out, like with the emergency management world, which I wasn't thinking about, you know, 20 years ago. There's so many emergency managers in Southern California that it's like one after another, opportunity after another. And yeah, sure, you have a shortage of weather, but then when you do get weather. It's severe. It's severe and impacts a large population. So it's kind of a different type of uh, strategy. When I first really just loved it and craved it and needed it, I wanted to be in it. Now, you know, we're in Southern California right now. Uh, <laughs> I I wouldn't pass it up. It's it, it's it's nice to be able to not constantly think, well, will weather affect this? Will weather affect that? The droughts are annoying because they're you can't do anything about it. It's frustrating. Right. It just keeps going on and on and on. But but that's lack of weather. So, But normal weather in California has enough excitement to keep me busy. <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of interesting because as an emergency manager, obviously one of the things that we think about is weather. Not even just about the, the weather regarding like what it is today. Is it going to be sunny out? But how is that weather going to affect one fires or two? How is it going to affect the the, the, the troops out there on, on the ground as far as you know, how 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 often do we need to rotate people through? You know, can people stay extended out there? What's the water situation going to be like? You know, how much uh, sunscreen do you have to wear? Right. You know, it's the things like this that, that we have to think about on that process. And weather really becomes everything that we do. Because, I mean, disasters aren't inside the air conditioning where you can just turn the air conditioner up and down. You know, so that's really important. So... That's a good segue right there with weather and emergency management. How did you get involved with, realistically, the, the emergency management side of, of weather? So, originally, you know, when I was involved in the deep core weather, 
and like playing in the weather, if you will. I then kind of branched off into more of the science and understanding. And I actually was working as a science officer for several years and, you know, doing research papers or, or conducting case studies, trying to figure out what happened. Why did it happen? Why did we predict it or not predict it? And then I realized, you know, after a while going to conferences, there's actually a whole nother side of it, like the societal impact the population, the messaging of the information. Sure, you can know the science, but if you can't message it, no one's going to listen to you, no one's going to respond, no one's going to react, no one's going to prepare. So that part became kind of like a challenge, if you will, rather than just burying your head into like the science and the research. And now I realize, you know, all of those are active, you know, in society right now. And they're all, you know, there's researchers and scientists and they're all trying to play together so that ultimately the messaging can get out there so people can actually take action before they're in harm's way or understand something better or maybe even something simple like buy flood insurance if they're in a flood prone area. I I realized that, um, you know, because they kind of trained us originally like, oh, no, you're a scientist. Oh, no, you're a media person. And there was never any like overlap. And I realized you know, getting a message out, you, you need to talk to the media. You need to be able to talk to the emergency managers. You need to be able to talk to the first responders, the fire chief, and and be able to get that message out there so that they can make, make a decision that hopefully would save lives and property in, in the long run, but may actually just be involved in their daily routine and operations. And there's no shortage of that in California, like you mentioned with fire weather. I mean, it could, it could be the, like we've seen multiple fires just in the past year that are just as costly, just as deadly, just as scary, just as confusing, just as crazy as the big floods that we've had as well. So speaking of floods, Florence comes in, it looks like it's going to be this big Cat 4 hurricane going to slam into North Carolina. And all of a sudden she peters out at the end. Cat 1, maybe just a tropical depression, you know, comes in here, but she stalls. And she dumps a lot of rain. And so now we have this flooding that's still going on. Let's walk through that a little bit. And then, like, how come – let me rephrase it. When we send these warnings out saying, look at this big cat forest coming. It's going to rip the roof off your house. And it becomes, you know, downgrades to a wand. And people go, whatever. And meteorologists got it wrong. And now I'm, you know, evacuating for no particular reason. But obviously, when it stalled and we had the flooding, we still have a bunch of rescues and some deaths that occurred with Florence. How do we message that right? And how do we not look at it where it's this big, scary thing and, you know, run for your life, but we still want you to to, to leave? <laughs> yeah. It's – the hurricane's a great example because there's a typically a long lead time before they make landfall. It's not like a fire, per se, where you get the ignition – and you got windy conditions and it's out of control covering uh, 30,000 acres in 24 hours. Um, you see it coming. You see it building. Now, we're almost like a victim of our own success. So all this categorization, like with a tornado, like I don't tell you run for cover. You got an F4 coming at your house. I might have some information like on radar that shows the wind speeds are near F4. I may have some history of the damage. I typically don't say F4, I just say tornado. And you're like, got it. 
<laughs> right, I'm, right, right. Out of, I'm out of there. Plan I understand B. that word. Um, and like with a hurricane, it's become because we can forecast them, you know, days in advance and they're large and they're slow moving. It's become kind of a, you know, sense that we're okay. It's only a category two. It's only a one. Oh, look out. It's a five. Oh, it's not going my way. It's going your way. And then we have this cone, which shows all the air. The bottom line is the error, like with the track, you know, after day three can be quite significant. The error with the intensity, like the category, is something that we actually have a whole entire NOAA project working on because we as humans, we as computer models and everything are having a lot of trouble with the intensity of it. The problem with that is if you're sitting in harm's way, it's very easy to look at, well, it's only a category one. It's, it's barely a two. It's not that bad. You know what? I lived through Hugo. That was a four. Right. So I'm okay. I should be okay. And there, So we start playing those mind games and stuff. But on the other hand, we know darn well that like Tropical Storm Allison, for example, in Texas, uh, previously the highest rainfall before Harvey produced like 30 inches of rain in one location, just kept raining and raining and raining. Those just a tropical storm that the rainfall has really nothing to do with the wind speed and the wind speed has nothing to do with the rainfall that they're completely, but we try to categorize this as one stop shopping type of thing. So it, it does lead to a, a large false perception. There's a big debate now in the research community and there's really been for a while about how, how do we improve this messaging? You know, how do we talk to social scientists to figure out why do people not respond to category one? Why do they respond to category four or, or or higher, that type of thing? Or do they respond to that? Are they just thinking of the last event they lived through and comparing it, which a lot of, a lot of us do? So we have a big challenge with that. And because the, the, the rainfall in some of these tropical systems and the movement is not necessarily becoming less predictable, but well, we are seeing some severe, just in the past two years, Harvey and Florence. So as a weather forecaster, you know, you'd love to be able to forecast 30 inches of rain, 35 inches of rain, or maybe even like Harvey, 50. Uh, to actually see it happen is a little bit surreal. So we're having these events where um, maybe they're not more frequent, maybe they're not higher category, but we're seeing more individual events with heavier rainfall you know, some of that might be associated with the atmosphere being a little bit warmer. But the bottom line is we, our messaging is almost a victim of a successful category. We used to have like four different parameters like 100 years ago for hurricanes to meet a cat one. Pressure was one of them. Like the actual pressure. Mm. Do you even care about the pressure? No. So we dropped it. All right. And now we're finding, you know, well, now we need a category for storm surge and flooding. And we know that wind is not most of the fatalities in, in an average hurricane. Right. It's flooding. Right. So we know all this, but the, the, getting that into the message is, is clearly not necessarily always, you know, working to its best. You're not going to get everyone in harm's way to evacuate. But you're also um, not doing it to the best of an extent if, if someone's at the grocery store saying, you know what, Betty? It's only a cat, too. Just take it easy. <laughs> Potentially could be spreading it through the network and social media. That, you know what? We're going to stay on this one. Right. And then you end up having 30 inches of rain. and what? I mean, there's still what they were cresting this past weekend. There's still 
dealing with widespread flooding that's, right. that's only now slowly receding in the rivers. So imagine in California with a, what we call like an arc storm, a thousand year storm that has happened before. Um, it didn't necessarily happen in you and I's lifetime, but imagine something like that moving into the population of California with our terrain. Mm. Didn't have much terrain in North Carolina last I checked. Not on the coast. You you force a, a big atmospheric river into our California mountains, and you're talking about not a Category Three hurricane, but you're talking about rainfall that's equivalent to what they saw from Harvey and Florence, which would be a big problem. So we're talking about going into the El Nino year, right? Mm-hmm. And in the last couple of El Ninos, again, have been a big bust, right? Everybody's like, okay, we've got a big storm. And, and uh, it's like, okay, now, as emergency managers, should we start being ready for this El Nino year? Or, you know, is it going to be another big bust? Or, like, how do we as emergency managers even get our heads around about planning for these things? Because we put time, money, and effort into these. And is it something that we should take serious again? Or how does that work? The rest of that story, when we return from our break... Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Exercises are a cornerstone of emergency preparedness, but can be costly, time-consuming, and complicated. TTX Vault can ease the exercise planning process with our wide array of tabletop, drill, and functional exercise packages that are fully adjustable. Once you choose the appropriate discipline and emergency scenario, you'll receive the exercise, all HC-suggested paperwork pre-filled out, access to our online simulation environment, Chelsea County, USA, and 30 minutes of phone consultation. Get your time back at ttxvault.com. Welcome back from that quick break, and thank you so much for listening to the sponsors, because without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here at Ian Weekly, and hit them up, check them out, say hi, tell them that uh, we sent you. Now for the rest of the story. As emergency managers, should we start being ready for this El Nino year, or... You know, is it going to be another big bust? Or like, how do we as emergency managers even get our heads around about planning for these things? Because we put time, money, and effort into these. And is it something that we should take serious again? Or how does that work? So it's, it's an interesting scenario. So uh, yeah, 2015-16 to this date is the strongest El Nino on record in the ocean. When you, sp- when you stick a thermometer in the, in the equator of the ocean that, that winter, it's never been that warm and ne- never been that massive. And the satellites showed it and everything. So the water part of it's working. It's not translating like what we thought it used to to the atmosphere. So we're not getting the storms and the rain and the frequency or the quantity of, of it. And that year was a bust, like you said. Here you have the biggest, uh, predicted biggest El Nino three to five months in advance. Broke all records in the ocean. Didn't translate. Uh, all the storms went north. Almost all of them. We had like two storms, uh, two big ones. Almost all of them went to Northern California or even Seattle had its wettest, had one of its wettest years on record, hmm. 2015, 16 Seattle. This so is a lot. It's supposed to be right? opposite. <laughs> so we missed the forecast, hey, between friends, uh, what, like a thousand miles or so? <laughs> uh, so not, not too bad, right? Imagine missing a thousand miles on a hurricane. <laughs> right. Yeah, so we missed the whole weather pattern uh, by, by, by a long shot. Um, and 
What we used to say in, in southern United States, like Texas, when I lived in that area and in Florida, with the hurricane season, the biggest question every year was, and, and this might be a great example this year with Florence, but the biggest question every year was, how many hurricanes? How many? You waiting for the release. Like, okay, here comes the report from NOAA. Um, we expect seven named. Oh, no. You know, like, we're going to get nailed. But then we had years where they all went offshore. They, they never packed the land. So it got a little frustrating because they had their own problem with that. Like, how do you tell people that this year, okay, let's say you knew only one hurricane was coming to make landfall. One. What do you do? So we started kind of messaging every year you prepare for that event. Every year. You might have more information. Like you might have water temperature information. You might have computer model information. You might have climate information. Maybe you just woke up in the morning and, and, and had a vision of a hurricane coming, but each year going to have different information. But every year, if you prepared the same and expected this big event to come into your area, you might actually reduce, you know, the impact. So in California, it's probably no different. So we already know our weather's a little bit wacky. We have three years of drought and then um, all of a sudden it rains so hard. They set a record in Lake Tahoe with the most snow in 2016-17. Right. The reservoirs overtopped, like Oroville started having problems. <coughs> but we didn't expect that, right? We didn't expect we expect that the year before. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of taken maybe I don't know if this is a page out of emergency management, but we've kind of taken the approach that um, we may have more information, like this year, knowing there's an El Nino coming. But if you hang your hat on that, you're going to either be disappointed or underprepared. And if every year you were kind of going into it as the same, okay, we're going to get three or four big storms. Maybe one of those will cause problems, maybe two. Instead of, okay, we normally get 10 inches of rain. This year we're going to get 15. What if that rain fell all distributed? What if it fell one day? Mm -hmm. We're seeing that with a lot of events, with those atmospheric rivers, kind of like with the hurricanes we talked about, with the, with the rainfall being more extreme, all or nothing. Right. We had an event in San Diego two years ago where about five inches of rain fell in, a, in an otherwise pretty quiet year. And the river, San Diego River, reached its second highest flood stage in 120 years. So we're seeing these type of events that are more extreme. And, and they're not necessarily less predictable because you're not going to predict the weather beyond two weeks. Right. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. Even if you're, you know, online as the super king weather forecaster, you know. Beyond, beyond 10 days, two weeks is, is at, the, at the moment, really stretching it. So when you're in prepare mode, like maybe October and your storms come December, or maybe November, your storms come January, you got about two months, right? You really need to be preparing every year like it's the same. Now, there's, there's caveats to that because um, there's funding and grants and, and other things get triggered by more, more urgency. Right. But every year really needs to be that type of urgency. It doesn't matter if it's a hurricane back east, the EF5 in, in the Midwest, the, the Nor'easter in Boston, or the atmospheric river out here, or maybe even the Santa Ana wind event. It may be, maybe rain is not our challenge. Because we know every year we're going to get storms. We know every year we're going to get Santa Ana's. But if we go into the year really thinking, okay, no, this year we're probably not going to get that big one. And then, look, Florence comes along, and this year was not expected to be a very active hurricane season, and it hasn't been. Right. But it just takes one. It takes one. Yeah.
one that stalls and over your house. When it comes to preparedness, it takes one. <laughs> right. Now, if you're not into preparedness and and you and you just want to like count numbers, or let's say you're into uh, which is a really hard job, water supply. Hmm. Then you're really not focused on. I don't care if it's one storm. I actually I need to know like the volume it becomes a different game for water supply. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to impact, it's just one storm typically. Uh, that whether it be a firestorm or a windstorm, rainstorm, or like Florence is a great example. If we don't have another major hurricane, you know that hits the coast, even our best computer models cannot identify the genesis of a hurricane really beyond 10 days. Hmm. Same with a nor'easter, same with a California storm. You know, the nor'easters are kind of fun as a kid. You know, you're like, yay, no no school, right? You yes. Know? But, uh, you know, we did the same thing. It was like when we knew, this is a family, when you knew the nor'easter's coming, you go and you make sure that your supplies are good to go because you could be socked into your house for like a week, you know, before you yeah. get out and get new milk or whatever. You know, and, and uh, my dad always had, we always had dried powdered milk at our house and i don't know why but it's so disgusting you know but that was like really important for him because you know as like for him just being prepared just being ready for the the big storm and at least that we could have milk on our cereal when you yeah. know whatever and it's funny because coming from that culture of knowing that we're gonna get storm we're gonna be ready we might be socked into our house for a bit but we're still gonna be prepared for that for that storm i never thought of storms like nor'easters as being a disaster until I start working in emergency right, management and right. going, holy crap, this is like a really big deal. It's not fun, you know? No. But you, sometimes you see the same thing with the hurricanes. You know, you, people are like, ah, oh, okay, we're going to have a hurricane party. The hurricane in in New Orleans is never closed for a hurricane. People mm-hmm. go there and get drunk and do yeah. whatever. You know, it's they, they, we think sometimes storms as, and when I say we, as a population, as a, as a um, something that's fun. Right. You know, not, not necessarily scary. And I'm sure the people that in the Midwest and in the, um, they get the tornadoes going through, I know they don't think storms are ever fun. But, you know, that's kind of a weird situation. And, and we have the same problem here in California. When we have like these big rainstorms, we're kicking people off the beaches and saying, hey, these waves are going to kill you. You know, don't go into the water. Don't kayak down Santa Ana River. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just like, it's kind of a weird thing. How do we really kind of get the culture to understand or the culture? How, we, how do we get the population to understand the culture of preparedness with storms? You know, when you were talking about the snowstorm example, yeah, every year my mom made sure we had candles. Yeah. There, there was no discussion. And part of it was because we couldn't forecast the weather probably more than two days in advance at best. But there was very little, almost no discussion. Like, oh, this is a bad winter coming up. It's El Nino. Get more candles. <laughs> um, you just got the candles. Right. It's part of the routine. Get the snow tires on. Snow tires on. Why would I get the snow tires on? It's not going to snow this year. How in the world do you know that? Right. You know, and you don't even know that today uh, for the upcoming winter. So we just did it. We just prepared. Now out west, you know, we have a we have a different story, different 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 type of flavor of weather, lower. You know, lower probability but high impact. Out west, I think you know um, we could uh, take some lessons from the Midwest and the East, and and maybe even my example of me like playing out in a thunderstorm and my mom locking me up and said, "Nope, nope, nope. You can go watch the water flood uh, from a distance after the lightning stopped." Is if we uh, take the approach that it's not just us that's affected; it's the first responders. Because nowadays, we're definitely expecting to be rescued, to be saved, to be right. picked up, to be sheltered, to be protected. Right. And if we're not, we're blaming someone. Sure. 
And maybe back in the days of the Nor'easter, back in the 70s or something, or 60s, we weren't so quick to blame someone else. We're like, darn it, Mom, why didn't you get candles? Well, you told me there weren't many storms this year. <laughs> you know, there was none of that because you bought the candles. You had them. Right. Or the flashlight. You know, we literally had candles. I thought that was pretty exciting, though. I remember, like, oh, come on, storm, pick it up. You know, knock the power <laughs> out. You know, that type of thing. Because I'm thinking short term, you know. But if but if you're out there um, choosing to not evacuate or or, or just plain um, deciding for yourself, yeah, it's not that bad. I don't know what they're talking about. The fires, the fires way up the road. It's not going to affect me. You're, you're really jeopardizing lots of resources, lots of lives of first responders, which are trained and they will go get you. But um, it just uh, it freaks me out in this story where. Um, there was flooding. I think there was a tornado. There was flooding. It was out in Missouri a few years ago. A couple of first responders were attending someone, and they got struck by lightning. Mm. So here we, you know, we're worried about the tornado. We're worried about flooding, but we weren't worried about lightning. But let's say we were worried about lightning. They're still having to respond, and so the fires are like that in California. Right. It's like you can't just sit back and say. Well, the wind's going to die off in a couple of days. Let's just let the thing go. But at the same time, we're expecting, you know, that someone else is going to take care of it. And that's not always going to be the case. And when we start putting, you know, first responders or others in harm's way, it's complete opposite thinking to, okay, this year it's Santa Ana season. Let's get the defensible space or let's get the plan B of where we're evacuating to. <laughs> and if you wait till... Even knowing it's coming for a week, if I wait, I remember when they had the fires in 2014 in San Diego, it's, it's kind of scary and confusing. Roads start closing. You can't predict that like mm-hmm. day before. Certain roads close. The fire goes this way. It becomes pretty chaotic. And, and if you're cut off from your family, worse feeling. Because mm-hmm. then, you're, then you're really not going to think that straight. You're going to be kind of in panic mode. Right. And not all of it, but some of this could be avoided by being a little more that's true. That is true. Well, Alex, we're coming here to the uh, to the end of the interview. So if somebody wanted to get a hold of you or learn more about what's going on with the weather, how could they find out? So I am publicly available. <laughs> so uh, National Weather Service San Diego is the office I'm at. And there should be information if you just Google it, Alex Tardy, National Weather Service. And you should be able to get my contact information like email. Sure. And again, for those of you that are driving or don't have a sharp pencil, we will make sure that this information is on the show notes. You can find it on emweekly.com or, of course, whatever listening uh, program that you listen to will be in the show notes there as well. So don't uh, fret if you want to get that information. So, Alex, here we come to the hardest question of the day. What book, books, or publication do you recommend to somebody in the emergency management field? So you think it might be uh, like Sharknado or maybe like <laughs> some some really weather savvy, the nor'easter of nineteen seventy seven, the blizzard of ninety three. No, it's 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 none of that. Um, there's a leadership book called Leading Change. I think it was John Cotter, and uh, uh, Leading Change was the name. And I went into it thinking I kind of was forced to read it, and I went into it thinking like, oh gosh, another like lecture or like something I can't even apply. Mm-hmm. And it was completely opposite. I mean, it gave examples where I did I could relate to in my work, my my job as a meteorologist, and my family. And it was just eye-opening and 
couldn't put it down. It's called leading change. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily give you all the solutions to make everyone leaders, but it surely helps explain, you know, about being persistent and keep trying and keep giving the effort and, and recognizing that not everyone's going to do it. And sometimes you have to step up and do it. Leading change. That's a, that's a, I like the title of that, by the way. <laughs> that's cool. So before we let you go, is there anything you'd like to say to the emergency manager out there? To all the emergency managers, not just in San Diego, Southern California, but nationwide, probably worldwide. I don't have a lot of contacts in Mexico, but I know they do have emergency management there. We really appreciate, we know that you have a list and your top 10 list, depending on where you are, may include several types of weather. But we also know that that top 10 list may include many other things completely unrelated to weather. So we really appreciate uh, the support from emergency management, uh, trying to understand the science, the messaging, and using that information to help make decisions and that you're uh, willing to stick with us because you know we'll be wrong once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Alex, thank you so much for spending time here on Ian Weekly and it's a pleasure seeing you again and uh, I'd like to have you on again sometime. Thanks for having me on.